So now, brothers and sisters, I'll have you turn in your pew Bibles to Acts chapter 22. We're going to be picking up in that final verse of Acts 22 and reading uh, until verse 11 of the 23rd chapter. So Acts 22 verse 30 is where we begin. And if you've been with us over the course of the past few weeks, you may recall that we've been working our way through the story of the book of Acts, uh, where the apostle has made his journey now into the city of Jerusalem, knowing that it was going to bring uh, much difficulty to him. He's been told by the Spirit through different prophecies and friends, this is not going to be a good time for you, but yet he comes. And so something Jerusalem, you could say, was something of a uh, pressure cooker. It was a difficult place. We've reflected on that in weeks past, so there's not much need to rehash that here. But not only was Jerusalem's anger towards the Roman Empire at an all-time high at this point, and it was leading to a worse place, uh, as I said this morning, that destruction of Jerusalem was about to happen just a few years down the line, Uh, But also the Jews were feeling threatened by this new sect that they called it, a schismatic group, they would have said. Not true Jews because they had chosen to follow uh, this so-called Messiah named Jesus of Nazareth. And so we've seen that not only did Paul come into Jerusalem knowing full well that he was sort of at the list, the top of the list for Jerusalem's most wanted, Uh, But he also has made his way now into the temple, the very temple which they felt that his teachings blasphemed and subverted. And so though he came to take part in a purification ritual, to take the uh, Nazarite vow with those fellow young men, uh, it wasn't good enough. It didn't uh, ameliorate the tension, and they capture him and they accuse him of blaspheming the temple by bringing in a Greek named Trophimus, and by teaching things that they thought rejected the value of the temple and of the law. And so as we saw last week, as we read Paul's address address to the mob that tried to kill him, and what we saw there was that his, his speech essentially had two aims. First, he wanted to prove his faithfulness to the Jewish faith. Uh, he wanted to say, I, I'm a good Jew because I'm a follower of Christ. That was the fundamental contention of Paul's teaching uh, as as regards the faith of Judaism. But he also wanted to call out their hard-heartedness. He wanted them to show that they have, in their hard-heartedness, once again rejected the Lord's true prophet, Christ. Of course, Christ is not just a prophet, but he is a prophet nonetheless. Jerusalem kind of had this uh, reputation then of being a place where the prophets of God were killed. That happened several times in the Old Testament, and it happened ultimately then with Christ being put to death there as well. And so, of course, uh, Paul addresses them and says these things to them, but their response is not exactly warm and cuddly. They start getting very uh, angry once again. They start making, kicking up the dust around the temple courts, and the Roman guards have to grab him once again and bring him all the way into the barracks. And so in tonight's passage, in what we're about to read, we now come to the scene where Paul's hearing is now being given to him. And he's before the Jewish council uh, with sort of the Roman guards, the tribune and the centurions, uh, sort of standing as his bodyguards. And they're trying to figure out what exactly is going on. So that's where we read tonight. But before we do, let's pray. Our God, as we come into you, to this place and as we turn to your word, we ask that you would help us to understand it, that we would glean from it 
not just wisdom or some interesting lessons for this week, but that we would see and meet you as we read it, and that we would be changed by standing in your presence and by hearing you speak to us. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. So hear now the word of the living God, brothers and sisters, from Acts 22, starting with verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, that is the Roman tribune, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. When a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring, them, bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know if many of you know this, brothers and sisters, but I spent a grand total of six years in college. Six years. And I'm also not really sure if this makes me really smart because I spent extra time there or if it means that I'm really dull because it took me two extra years to go through it. But what I do know is that my least favorite class in my early years at my junior college was my speech 101 class. As a 19-year-old, I dreaded nothing more than getting up to give a presentation for about five to seven minutes. I can remember the project, the assignment. Uh, Five to seven minutes in front of my peers, most of which I, I didn't know at all. And so this was a terrifying uh, thing to consider. And maybe you can relate. According to a very scientific uh, research that I did uh, on Google, (laughs) I discovered that for most people, public speaking ranks pretty high towards the top, if not number one, then maybe number two, depending on the people you ask, of people's greatest fears. 
And of course, it's funny now that public speaking is quite literally something I do for a living. Uh, God has a funny way of doing that sort of thing. But the kind of public speaking I was doing, fearful as I was of my peers, is quite different and far less scary than what Paul was doing uh, here before the council in Jerusalem. Not only was he just asked to give an account, but he was really defending his life and his ministry. So speech 101 for me was just a walk in the park, really, but it was quite obviously paling in comparison to what Paul does here. But what's going on here? What's going on exactly in this story? What are the dynamics at play uh, in this council? Uh, Why did the Roman centurion bring the... Paul before the council? Why did the, or the tribune, excuse me, the leader of the centurions, why did he bring him in? Uh, And so we can sort of figure here that these Roman soldiers did not speak uh, Aramaic, or what Luke has previously called the Hebrew language back in 22 verse 2. Uh, So they were probably very confused about what all the commotion was about as this whole mob was attacking this singular individual in the temple. At first, they thought it was the Egyptian uh, radical guy who was coming in to subvert them, the Roman Empire. Uh, but then they quickly realized, no, it's not him. Paul declares to them, I'm a, I'm, my name is Paul. I'm a Jew. I'm from the city of Tarsus. And so and then we see that he pulls out his card about being a Roman citizen. And so they're trying to figure all of this out. Uh, They're trying to see if really Paul then was a problem for the Roman Empire or if he was really a problem just for the Jews. Because if Paul was just a problem for the Jews, then the Romans wouldn't really care all that much. It really wouldn't bother them uh, what was going on. They would would certainly want to make sure that he didn't cause too much trouble or whatever, uh, but it wasn't going to big deal. But if he was causing trouble for the Roman Empire, if what he was doing was seeking to subvert the Roman Empire, well, then they were going to have to get involved. They were going to have to get to the bottom of this and probably uh, have to uh, dole out some capital punishment for Paul. They'd probably have to take his life. And so the day after Paul's arrest here, the tribune convenes a meeting with the Sanhedrin, the same council of religious leaders that Jesus himself interacts with throughout the Gospels. And so Paul, ever the bold public speaker, very characteristically pipes up really at at the outset of the meeting, and the words that come out of his mouth are interesting. And we see these in verse 1. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, this may sound like an innocuous statement, maybe even a strange way to begin, but given that the response he gets, the response he gives and the response he receives, given that as a punch in the face, we can sort of infer that Paul meant something quite different than just saying, hey, I'm innocent. I think it's quite clear, given the context of the whole situation, that this was Paul's bold way of insinuating that despite the fact he was being accused of being against the Jewish law and people and religion, and by witnessing to the gospel, he was in fact a good Jew. I'm a good Jew, he's saying. And so Christians, you could say, are Jews in the sense that we are the ones who truly hold to the promises of the Old Testament, the ones given by the fathers and the prophets of the Old Testament scriptures. And it's not the hard-hearted Jews who have now rejected the Messiah 
as Christ. So Paul is essentially saying, you could say, look, my conscience is clean. If I had done something wrong according to God's law, I would tell you because I would feel the weight of my sin. You have to remember, Paul knows God's law very well. He was himself a Pharisee. God's law lays heavy on me, basically, is what he's saying. So whenever I sin, I know it. My conscience tells me. But in all of this, in all of my work on the behalf of the gospel of Christ, going out into all of these Gentile lands, telling them about Jesus, my conscience is at peace. For I know that I am right. And in the final analysis, you are wrong. That's really what Paul is saying. So it's no wonder then that this opening statement receives a punch in the mouth. He basically just told them to their faces that, they, the, that these leaders are the unfaithful ones and that it's him who is the faithful Jew. But being no stranger to pain, the wounded apostle doesn't shut up. This strike to the mouth doesn't silence him. He continues on and he responds by saying, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. So now it almost seems as if Paul just doesn't know when to be quiet. He doesn't know when to close his mouth. He's obviously here in a vulnerable situation. He's obviously in a place where he's outnumbered, but he doesn't seem to care. Here again, he accuses his striker of being faithless, this, this man, Ananias, the high priest of Israel. And so now he's saying, contrary to the law, you, you are attacking me, a man who has done nothing wrong. Objectively, Paul is saying, I'm not in the wrong here. And you've punched that, then an innocent man, breaking your own law, which you say that you uphold. But even more than this, he curses Ananias. God will strike you he says. And as it would turn out, just a few years later, this would in fact happen. Uh, history records through the historian Josephus that just a few years after this, uh, in about the year 68, if I remember correctly, Ananias was killed by a group of Hebrew or Jewish nationalists who thought of him as being too cozy, too close of a friend to the Roman Empire. And so they killed him because they saw him as being sort of a traitor. But be that as it may, God's judgment, of course, wasn't immediate. Paul is still in this difficult spot, and his life was clearly on the line. And so when the council responded to him incredulously, stunned that he had spoken to the high priest of all Israel this way, we see how in verse 5 Paul responds by essentially saying he didn't know that he was speaking to the high priest. Now, this is an interesting part of the story, uh, commentators and different commentaries that I have been reading all are kind of in disagreement about why Paul says he didn't know he was speaking to the high priest. Some suggest that Paul had bad eyesight uh, and they would look at different passages from the New Testament and infer that it's quite possible when Paul spoke about his bodily ailments that he actually it was an eye issue and so it's likely that he couldn't see who he was talking to and he may have seen a priest dressed in white and so he called him a whitewashed wall uh, just because he was this white figure standing across from him. Others will explain it uh, that 
the, the council didn't have a whole lot of time to come together and so because they had been convened quickly and so maybe they weren't dressed appropriately wearing their different religious garb and so Paul didn't see who the high priest was and he'd been away for so long and the high priest was different than the one he grew up with Gamaliel and so maybe he just couldn't tell and still others will say that maybe just in the midst of all the voices, he couldn't figure out who it was that was speaking these commands. And while there may be a grain of truth, perhaps, to these different suggestions, my hunch is that none of them are perfectly accurate. It seems to me that Paul, in saying, I did not know he was the high priest, is meant to be another bold claim against the high priest. That's another feisty thing, I think. And so I kind of read it like this. Paul is saying, essentially, Oh, excuse me, brothers, I did not know I was speaking to the high priest. And then he goes even so far as to quote scripture back at him, where he says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. I think in this, he's sort of slamming down the gauntlet on the high priest here. And he is sort of doing two things. He's proving his own superior knowledge of the scriptures, but he's also implying that by, his, by the high priest's rejection of Christ, that he is not now a legitimate ruler or authority of God's people anyways. And so even if the story stopped here, it would all kind of be quite the epic account. Paul facing the bullies, right? He's fighting back. He's not taking their abuse to, and he's not quieting himself down. He is continuing to be faithful. So Luke has given his readers a model here, I think, for how to defend their case if and when they find themselves in a similar scenario. I think Luke's readers who had been discouraged, maybe themselves persecuted at the hands of, of Jewish people, Jewish leaders, maybe they were a little bit excited about seeing that Paul stood up for them. He stood up for himself. But thankfully for us, Paul's only getting started. <laughs> and so in the next verse, he lands really what we might say is the knockout blow in verse 6, which reads this. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It's with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And so here again, Paul plays the perfect card. We've seen again and again over the past few weeks how he knows how to play his hand when he needs to. He's very adept at it, and he's the perfect man for the job, right? He's the man who can be any color in any situation. To the Greeks, he's a Greek. To the Jews, he's a Jew. Before the Sanhedrin, uh, he affirms that he is a Pharisee, so he not only is a Jew, but he has a theological opinion and belief that he takes. And he knows that by saying this, uh, he, by taking side in this theological dispute, he's going to cause some dissension and debate amongst them. And that's exactly what took place. But even more cunningly than that, we have to remember what's all going on here. The Roman tribune is standing here watching this. He's trying to figure out why Paul is in trouble. And so because Paul declares his position of a theological dispute that exists amongst Jews, and he's getting the leaders to take the bait on it, the Roman tribune standing guard in the background begins to learn that this is only a problem here because it's an, sort of an in-house debate amongst the Jews. That's a theological debate that they disagree on. And on this point, the words of Methodist Bible scholar, really the world's leading scholar, I would say, on the book of Acts, he writes this, Craig Keener. 
Paul divides the council and makes apparent to the Roman officer observing the incident that the real grounds for opposing him are theological, namely his mainstream Pharisaic belief in resurrection. The one charge to emerge for the Roman case file is thus that Paul is the object of prejudice for his theological convictions. Paul's brilliance then here is quite clear. He knew exactly what he was doing. In all of this, he would cause a a debate to break out, but also he would help the Roman authorities to see that really he was in trouble and hated because of his theological opinions, which they didn't really care about one one way or the other. But be that as it may, we'd be missing the larger point if all we did was recognize Paul's quick-witted genius, which of course is on full display here. And as I said, I think Luke intends for this to be seen as a model for us. Uh, Not only how we should be smart like Paul, which we may or may not be, but more profoundly than that, how we are to be dependent on the Holy Spirit in times like this. In other words, we ought to read this episode as Luke's way of providing for us an example, a fulfillment even, of Christ's own words to his disciples. Back in Luke's gospel, same author, different book, in chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, Luke tells us these words of Christ who foretold to his disciples what was about to happen after his departure. He says there, and when they bring you before the synagogues, the Jewish places of worship, and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The simple lesson here, then, is this. When we face moments in our lives where we need to defend our faith and to give an account for the hope that we have in Christ— We need to be then very dependent, completely dependent on the Holy Spirit to give us the words we ought to speak. For it is he, says Jesus, who will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And in one way or another, for all of us here tonight, we are going to have a Sanhedrin moment. We will find ourselves having to give an account for our faith. It may come in a casual conversation with a friend or a relative. It may come from a workplace or an employer. It may be an easy conversation that's not very costly at all, or it could be an extremely costly situation with really high stakes. For those of you here among us who have a few more gray hairs than the rest of us, thank you for living your lives in a way that we have seen as younger generations. We've seen your faithfulness. We've seen how you have clung to Christ. And it's my hope, and I would even say my expectation, that you will not have too many of these super costly encounters in your lifetime, where you have to choose between following God and your livelihoods. And it's my hope that this is the case for younger generations as well. But If I'm honest, I I think about the future a lot as a youth pastor and what our young people will be facing, and I can't help but think that there's going to be moments where they are put in situations like this, costly moments, where they have to choose to follow the Lord, where they will have to choose to follow the flow of the world. And so, just like Paul, who was a very morally upstanding citizen, a very morally upstanding Jew. He even was very nice and, and good in all the things that he did for the Jews. He went to the temple trying to prove to them his love and respect for the Jewish faith. No matter what he did, it still did not ameliorate the tension. 
And so when we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place, I hope that we choose the rock, the capital R rock of Christ. And as we do, we must depend on the Spirit as well, come what may. So we should ask ourselves two questions. Two questions. Will we know God's Word well enough to excel? Are we going to know God's Word, able to, to be able, like Paul, to refute those who put us on trial, to know how to behave in such a moment so that we should do, we can suffer under persecution well. And the second question is this, will we trust the Spirit to give us the words to speak? Will we try to take matters into our own hands or will we listen to the Spirit as we are in those difficult moments? Will we trust the words of Christ? The Spirit will do this. Thankfully for Paul, this, of course, was not the end of the road. It very clearly could have cost him his life. That's exactly what we'll see in the weeks ahead. His clever statement about the resurrection, however, was an enormous success. It perfectly split the room and allowed him to be taken back to the barracks. And so we read in the final verse of the passage, in verse 11, this. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And so in the weeks to come, as we continue our way through this journey of this sort of extended trial scene, uh, I, I hope that we continue to learn the lessons of what it looks like to trust the Spirit, which is what Paul does. Uh, having now witnessed to Christ in Jerusalem with faithfulness, you may not say success, uh, it wasn't exactly a mass conversion of souls on this time around, but he has been faithful, he has witnessed here, now the Lord is calling him on to go where he's been longing to go for a long, long time now, many years. He's going finally to the city of Rome, where he will be given another opportunity, several more opportunities to speak and to present the gospel to people in distant lands, right at the heart of the empire. And so he goes, and as he calls himself in the book of Ephesians, he says that I'm an ambassador in chains. That is who Paul has now become. Uh, for the rest of his days, as far as we know, he does not lose these chains. He continues to minister from them. And so, brothers and sisters, may we be faithful like him. In the name of the Father, and of the Holy Spirit, and of the Son. Let's pray.